Uh, but my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist. And we're in week three of our series, Grace is Greater. Look at that. We get an applause before we start. I like it. You've sat at that table hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. You've shared so many meals together. You've shared so many memories as a family. At the end of your day, you've sat there with your family and, and you've reflected on the day, the good and the not so good of what happened during that day. You've sat at, around that table for holidays and, and you've had those picture-perfect moments around that table. But this day was a different kind of day. This day was like no other day that you would ever experience before in your life. And as you sat down at that table, you could sense the tension in the house. You could sense the tension in that room. And as you sat down, one sibling on one side, another sibling on the other side, you look across the table as your mom and as your dad sat down at that table. And as your dad, with the most serious look on his face, looks across the table, he says, your mom and your dad don't love each other anymore, and we're getting a divorce. And in that moment, you experience brokenness like you never have experienced before. In that moment, every security that you had known up until that moment was gone like that. And maybe for you, you weren't sitting at that seat as one of those kids, but you were sitting at a different seat at that table. And you never thought it was going to be like that. In fact, when you walked down the aisle or as she walked down the aisle towards you, you had this blissful view of what married life was going to be like. You were so excited about what your life was going to be together. It was going to be a lifetime of memories. But as the stresses of life, as the financial pressures you found yourselves in, and everything else just started to pile up, you found that you were more roommates living at the same address than you were husband and wife. And you knew getting to this moment was going to be so hard. And you knew in the depth of your heart the brokenness that you felt and the failure that you viewed yourself in. But even you, but even you weren't prepared as you sat down at that table and you looked across there and you saw tears running down your kids' faces. To see the brokenness on their faces only started to scratch the surface on the brokenness that you felt deep within you. Brokenness. Brokenness comes in so many different ways. Maybe for you, it was the words that she said. You couldn't believe the way that her words would pierce you to the depth of who you are. You never deserved to be touched in the way that you were touched. But here's the thing. Those bruises might have healed on the outside, but on the inside and on your heart, those bruises are as raw as raw can be. And even this morning, as I start to scratch the surface on your brokenness, you sit here and you think, I don't trust anyone ever again. You sit here in this place and you can't love anyone. You can't open yourself up because of the abuse, because of the brokenness that you found in your life. Brokenness. You always thought that you had tomorrow. You always thought that there would be another day to tell them how much you loved them to tell them how important they are, to look at them eye to eye, face to face, just to spend just a couple more moments together. But it was tragic. It was a heart attack. It was a car accident. It was a moment that you had no clue was coming. And as a result of that tragedy, your life could be described as tragic from that day all the way up until this day. For since that day, you found that in a moment's notice, you can get angry like that. 
Ever since that day, you used to drink every once in a while a glass of wine, but you need that bottle every single day so that you can get through today. Brokenness. Brokenness. Brokenness comes into our life in so many different forms and so many different fashions. Sometimes our brokenness comes as a result of our own choices. Other times our brokenness comes as a result of something tragic, and yet still other times brokenness comes as a result of choices of those closest to us. But brokenness nonetheless affects us. Brokenness hits us to the core of who we are. Brokenness, as I describe it for you right now, bubbles up from in your heart where you smashed it down and bubbles up to the forefront of your mind. Brokenness. But what if your brokenness, what if your story, what if that thing that you pushed down so far was the one thing? Was the one beautiful thing that God would take and make something out of something so terrible, so hurtful, so tragic? What if that was the one thing? What if it was the one thing that our God would do in His grace that is greater than your brokenness? What if it was the one thing that He took? And used to draw you near to him. What if it was the one thing that God used as he drew you near to him to change your heart from the inside out so that you were a different person and you impacted the lives of those around you? What if your brokenness was the one thing that God used to change you forever? As I shared at the beginning, we're in week three of our series, Grace is Greater. And today we're focusing in on brokenness. For brokenness can either draw us closer to God, or it can clam us up and push us further away from God and everyone else. But today we're here because we believe that God's grace is greater than any situation, any stress, any shame, any regret that we have in our lives. And Grace is Greater, the book, was written by Keitel Eidelman. And listen to how he describes God's grace. He says, grace is greater, says that in our brokenness, where we try to run and hide, that grace is relentless and grace will chase you down. And I believe that God in his grace is chasing you down today. That there are some of you that are here in this place today because God's grace has been chasing you and you have been pushing it aside and you've been trying to do things in your own way and God in His grace and in His mercy is bringing you right near to Him with the depth of His love. So in our time together this morning, I want to look at a passage of Scripture where we see two people who have some terrible things go on in their lives, not because of tragedy, but because of their own choices. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to see what happens when a person hardens their heart and how God can take the hardest, even your heart, the hardest of hearts, and transform them through the redemption of His grace. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It will be on the screens as well. But today we're looking at the story of David and Bathsheba when they committed adultery and tried even harder to cover up that adultery and made a mess of everything. And it's interesting as I bring up the idea that we're going to speak on adultery, I watch in some of your faces and it's like, well, I've never committed adultery. How does this apply to me? How does this apply to my brokenness? Well, maybe for you, your brokenness hasn't come in the form of adultery. But maybe I described the brokenness that you've suffered through in your life 
at the beginning of our time together. Or maybe for you, your brokenness might not have been divorce, it might not have been abuse, it might not be adultery, but maybe it came packaged in a different way. Maybe for you it's addiction, or deceit, or anger, or maybe because you're one of those good Christians, you sit here and say, I don't deal with that. Well, maybe your brokenness, Christian, comes in the form of your pride. But nonetheless, all of us struggle with different forms of brokenness. And as broken people, we're in need of God's grace in those areas of our lives. And so today, turn with me in 2 Samuel and read along as we learn about David, a man after God's own heart, who found himself in some territory that he wasn't expecting to find himself in. And yet we're going to learn from his actions today. So verse 1 sets the tone for us and sets the scene, and here's what it says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. In verse 1, we see that it was springtime. It was the time of year when the agricultural chores, the beginning part of them had been done. But not yet the summer when it was hot. And so this was the time when they typically had gone to war. David's kingdom had grown to a place where he felt as though he could delegate off some of the leadership of the battlefield. And so he sent off his men. He figured, hey, you know what? I needn't bother with these details now. When they get close to victory, I'll go out there as the conquering king and I'll celebrate rah-rah with my men. And in the same way, the kingdom had grown in such a place where all of those that were there under David's leadership had really grown a great heart for them and they had embraced him as his, their king. See, it's interesting when you really look at it in verse 1. For David, everything was going so well. Everything had lined up. It seems as though everything was just perfect. Isn't it interesting when everything in our lives seems to be going exactly the way that we want it to go, that we just get a little bit laid back? That we get a little bit comfortable? That we get a little bit lax in our focus? See, it's interesting, and this is the first fill-in on your outline or idea, is that idleness can lead to brokenness. For David was idle. In fact, look at verse 2. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. The man said, She is Bathsheba. See, it's interesting that when you look at this, David was a man of action. David was a warrior. He was a warrior who now took naps in the afternoon. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way a warrior is supposed to be. But see, Scripture doesn't give us much mindset into the what David was thinking. What was going on in his mind in that moment? Was he looking for excitement? Was he looking for a challenge? Was he looking for an escape from whatever his life was as a king? We don't know exactly what it is, but all we know is that David had time on his hands. Time to take a nap in the afternoon. Time to take a leisurely stroll on the roof of his palace. Time to notice off in the distance that there was something. Oh, wait a minute. Someone that was beautiful that caught his eye. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that in idle time, that it seems that sin comes knocking at your door? So let me ask you this. In what ways in your life, in what ways in your day-to-day -day life or just your life in general, when you were idle, has sin come knocking at your door? 
an even further question to ask you, maybe to get a little bit more closer to you. Is your idle time leading you closer to Jesus? Or is your idle time pulling you further and further and further away from him? See, we can read the text and we can read into it as though David didn't know who that woman was immediately. But when you study from commentators, they believe that's so far from the truth. And here's what I mean by that. Is that Jerusalem at the time was about 10 acres. It's not that big, much like our campus here is 14 acres. So imagine your church a little smaller. So they knew people there. And not only did, was it a small place, but those that would have been closest to David's palace were those that were part of his administration. And much like you and your neighborhood, we typically know the people that live around us or near us. And so it's interesting that although David says, find out about her, David probably knew even more so when you look at the answers from the man that David sent. Listen to it. His first response was, he said, is not this Bathsheba? His first response in David's mind should have gone off, stay away, stay away, that's bad. The man responds with the, right afterwards, the daughter of Elam, you know her daddy, David, stay away, stay away. Still, David hasn't figured it out. The wife of Uriah, her husband serves you, stay away, she's off limits. But for some reason or another, when we're in our brokenness, when we're in seasons of sin, when our focus is not put solely on Jesus and on the cross, when our focus is put on our desires, our sinful nature, it's so easy to miss those warning signs, isn't it? It's so easy to miss the way that God is putting those stop signs over and over and over in our lives. Or maybe, just maybe, you saw every single one of them and you just bowled right through them. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David the news that David didn't want to hear by saying, I am pregnant. The beginning of verse 4, it says, So David sent messengers and took her. When you read in our English translation, it makes it seem as though she had been implored or pushed into this situation. Now, there certainly was a power element here with David being king. But nowhere in the scripture do we actually see that she was forced into it. No, rather, she was a willing participant alongside of David. Now, scripture is vague in the details. For all we know, this could have been far more than just a one afternoon stand. It could have been a relationship that blossomed and eventually resulted in a love child. But in the details that we see, in the details that Scripture gives us, we see so very clearly that Bathsheba is pregnant with a love child and David is the baby's daddy. It's interesting when you think about it. Because have you ever read the Bible and wished that they gave you more details? I mean, when I read verse 5 and then I skip to verse 6, I'm like, man, there is so much that had to have happened between verse 5 and verse 6. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know when I read stuff, I want to know what their mindset was. What was their heart language? Well, when you think about it, what do you think it was like for Bathsheba? I mean, she had to have been thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, what are people going to think of me? My husband's out at battle and now I'm with child? I mean, how are people going to view me? And then there's David. I mean, David, same question had to have been, what am I going to do? Only on a greater scale. For David had to have been thinking, what is my kingdom going to think? What are all the people in my leader, under my leadership going to think of their king now? 
He had to have been thinking, what are all those warriors that are out on the battlefield going to think when they find out that I was with Uriah's wife? And both of them had to literally have been scared to death. For they both would have known that according to Levitical law, if you were caught in the sin of adultery, the sentence was very clearly death. And we read that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. So their emotions had to have been so raw, their brokenness had to have been staring them right there in their face. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there in your life where the troubles that you found yourself in, the brokenness that you're struggling with, with everything that's going on in your life, seems to be staring you right there in your face? And yeah, you try to push it down. Yeah, you try to act as though it didn't happen. But it seems to come popping up over and over right there in front of you. Where the consequences of your decisions seem to feel like they're tumbling down upon you like a ton of bricks. And it's in that moment, in that situation, in that heart place, where David... Bathsheba, and you and I deal with the exact same thing, and it's called regret. It's interesting, because for David and Bathsheba, they had to have been facing regret in some tremendous ways. Which brings me to my next point for you today, which is brokenness leading to regret only brings about more regret. In the book Grace is Greater, Kyle Eidelman references a website called Secret Regrets. And it's a, an anonymous website where people can go on and they can just type on there their different things that they regret anonymously as an opportunity just to kind of get it out of them. I went on there this last week and I got to tell you, it's absolutely heartbreaking to read some of the things that people have posted on there. In fact, let me share a couple of them. One person says, I regret not having the guts to tell my parents about my addiction, not having the guts to break the positive image that I carefully crafted through years of lying. I regret not having the guts to admit that I couldn't do it on my own. Another says, I regret not doing something to stop my father from abusing my mother and myself, both physically and emotionally. Another says, I regret giving you my heart when all you wanted was my body. Another says, I regret that I never told you kids that I love you. I regret that for some reason I can't say those words. Another says, I regret my entire life. I regret that I'm a good little coward, totally obedient and ever afraid of judgment. And this one, the way that they end, just spoke to me so loud. It says, I regret hiding so much of myself from everyone around me. I regret that I hiding that I self-harmed. I regret hiding so many of my emotions. And listen to this. I regret holding back my opinions. I regret all the times I suffered in silence. I regret all my silence. I regret all my silence. How have you been suffering in silence when it comes to regret or shame or brokenness in your life? If you were to go on a website like Secret Regrets, what is that one thing? What is that one thing that has happened in your life that you don't want anyone else to know about? And where is Jesus at in that one than that do you believe do you believe that god's grace is greater than your secret shame 
Do you believe that God's grace is greater than your secret regret? Do you believe that God's grace is greater than your brokenness? And my question for you following that up is this. Are your regrets chaining you to your past? See, last week when we were here together, Pastor Brad shared a powerful message about how do we handle guilt. And at the end of the message, we had an amazing time in here as we had a cross over here, we had a cross over here. And we came up and we nailed those regrets or those guilty areas to that cross. And it was so powerful, so significant spiritually for so many of us. But it's interesting to me, is that when we go through those spiritual high moments, when we do that, it's absolutely amazing. But when we allow regret to continue to echo in our minds, when we continue to allow that tape of who we once were to identify who we are today, when we don't allow God's grace to take that guilt and remove it completely, we miss out on the power of the moment. And bigger than that, we get trapped in a cycle of regret. Kyle Eidelman says this, and grace is greater. He says, regret is feeling bad about something you have, or haven't done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are or how you think you're perceived by God and others. See, it's in our brokenness, in our shame, in our entanglement of sin, when we believe that God can't or won't love us, or even more personally, where you feel you aren't lovable as a result of what you've done or what's been done to you. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how, he was, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. I think that's funny in there because David didn't really care. David had hatched this plan of deception he was trying to pull off. He was just trying to act like the nice guy. Of, well, how's everything going out at the war? David had one purpose and one purpose alone. Listen to verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So David decides that in his brokenness, in his regret and in his shame, that he's going to solve the situation and he's going to fix it on his own. Have you ever done that in your life? Where you've gotten yourself in such a mess, you figure the only way out of it is to fix it my way. And so David, what he does is he calls Uriah back from war and he decides that he's going to honor him. He's going to honor him by giving him some special time with his bride. In fact, you read in verse 8 that it says, David says to go down to your house and wash your feet. Washing your feet was a cultural euphemism, much like we would say of go home and get lucky. I try to keep it PG at church, okay? And I love that David, he even sweetens the deal by sending a gift from the king. Now scripture doesn't say exactly what that gift was. If I was to read into it, David wanted to set the mood. So I imagine that David was sending a blanket with candles, with a feast set from a king, with a little bottle of bubbly, trying to set the mood so that David and Bathsheba could get out of the trouble that they brought upon themselves. Only it doesn't work. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Strike one. Uriah was an honorable man. Uriah, in his integrity, decided that he didn't deserve to go and be with his wife, and so he stayed right there. And look at verse 10. 
When they told David, Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, what's wrong with you? No, I just added that in there. It says, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I not then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? And I love what he says at the end there. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Uriah, in essence, was saying, how can I go and own with my wife and wash my feet with her when all the other men are out on the battlefield? So why do I deserve this treatment when everyone else is out there suffering? Everyone else is away from the blessing of their wife. Everyone else is out there. What Uriah was doing is he was being honorable at a time and at a place when it was the last thing that David wanted him to be for David. So David decides, I'm going to take one more swing at covering this regretful action. And so David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Verse 13, and David invited him and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on, the couch, on his couch with the servants of the Lord, and he did not go down to his house. David says, hey, you know what? If I couldn't get you to go with my little party I set up for you in Bathsheba, well, I'll throw a party for you instead. We'll eat, we'll drink, we'll have a great time together. And Uriah in that moment has no clue that he's celebrating with the man who had betrayed him. And not only was it the man who had betrayed him, he is the man that is currently betraying him in that moment. Betrayal is a sick, sick thing. Betrayal is a knife that cuts and leaves jagged edges and scars. Betrayal, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's financially, betrayal can hurt like nobody's business. So while Uriah was drinking and enjoying his respite from the battlefield. Once again, David was hoping to shoo him along, send him home, go home and fix this little paternity issue that we're going to have. Remember, they didn't have Dr. Phil or Maury Povich or any of those people back then. Everybody would have figured it out without a lie detector. And so listen to what it says in the last part of verse 13. That even with too much celebrating, Uriah was an honorable man. It says, in the evening... He went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Strike two. So David, David now frustrated, I'm sure, although scripture doesn't say, probably was dealing with panic on the inside. Isn't it interesting when things aren't going the way that we want them to, when things aren't going the way that we want to control them, when it feels like all of our decisions are coming tumbling down on us in ways that we weren't expecting. Isn't it interesting that we deal with unhealthy emotions in those moments? For David, it might have been panic. Maybe for you, you struggle with bouts of panic as a result of unhealthy decisions. Maybe for you, you rage with anger. Or you have bouts of depression as a result of your decisions. Or maybe you're one of those people that because of unhealthy choices, because of your brokenness, because of your shame and regret, you literally bring those things upon yourself physically and you can feel it and you get sick as a result. But nonetheless, of whatever it was that David was struggling with, even if it was panic, David decides, I'm going to solve this. And I'm going to solve this once and for all which is the next idea I have on your bullet today, is that when decisions are led by our brokenness and not by God, they result in further 
brokenness. I want to say that one more time. When decisions are led by our brokenness and not by God, they often result in further brokenness. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Isn't that funny? He betrayed him by making him carry the letter. Verse 15. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest of fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Strike three. David now forever will have Uriah's blood on his hands. David, in that moment, solved a temporary issue with a permanent solution. Have you ever been there? Have you ever taken a temporary issue and solved it in a permanent fashion? Maybe for you it's relationally. Maybe you've had some relational issues with a friend. And instead of working out, instead of allowing God's grace to get into that situation, cut them out, get them out of there. I don't want them in my life anymore. You solve it with a permanent solution. Or maybe for you it's, it's you with your, your relationship with your parents or parents. And because they say something, because they get into your business a little bit, because they're opinionated, you say, you know what? I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Cut them out. They're permanent. We'll stay here. You stay over there. Or maybe it's vice versa. And as a result of, of the cho choices your children made, maybe they didn't make all the choices that you wanted them to do. Maybe they rejected the Lord and it's so hard for you, and I get that that's heartbreaking. But because it's a temporary, because our God still changes lives, our God still brings hope into places that are hopeless, but because you didn't appreciate their decisions, you said, you know what, you can't come over to my house anymore. I want nothing to do with you. You're off on your life. I have my life. We'll be good. You solved a temporary issue with a permanent solution. Or maybe you're here today, and maybe it was years ago, or maybe it's right now, and you find yourself in the place of an unplanned pregnancy. And although in the moment of it, in the stress and of everything coming tumbling down, it feels as if there's no hope. And you couldn't see how God could take that situation and make it into something beautiful. And so you chose, maybe because of the advice of somebody that you knew or respected, or maybe it was just on your own, and you said, you know what, I'm going to solve that issue. And you went and you found a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And ever since that day that you walked into that abortion clinic, you have lived with the shame and the regret and the brokenness. Can I tell you that even in your abortion, God's grace is greater. Even in that choice, even if you can't forgive yourself, God is there with his arms wide open saying, I forgive you. And I don't know exactly why, but this week as I was preparing this message, God burdened me to bring this part up. Maybe you're hit sitting here today, and you've heard the lies of what everybody says about you. And for some reason or another, you've bought into the fact that you're less than, that you're not good enough, and that your life and everybody else's life would be better if you weren't around anymore. And you've heard those suicidal thoughts, and they've started not just to echo in your mind, they're starting to seep down in your heart, and you've given serious thought to actually taking that step. 
Can I tell you with the utmost of sincerity, with the most love that I can muster up, but with the most boldness that I can speak into your situation, that is a permanent solution to a very temporary problem. And if you are here today, you believe, even with this little, 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 little teeny amount of faith, if you believe that God's grace is greater than brokenness, then you can believe that today God's grace is greater than whatever you find yourself in. And can I beg you, can I implore you, can I love you in such a way to say, cry out. Cry out and ask for help. Whether that's coming and talking with me, whether it's talking with who you came with, or it's calling a suicide prevention hotline. Don't take that step. God has a plan and a purpose. And even though it might feel like it's temporarily overwhelming, God will take whatever it is and turn it into something beautiful if you step back and let him do it. See, here's the thing. For David, he didn't wait. For David, he didn't wait to see how God could take and make something beautiful out of this. David said, I'm going to fix this situation, and I'm going to solve this. But there are so many ramifications for our decisions. In fact, look into what happens in verse 26. Skip down to there. It says, when the wife of Uriah had heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. See, Scripture doesn't tell us at what depths her heart was hurting, but I can only imagine how it must have felt for her as she lost her husband. And not only did she lose her husband, she had to have been mourning her decisions. She had to have been mourning the future that she could have had. She had to have been mourning all that had gone on to get to that place. Verse 27. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now understand, culturally, as we read verse 27, it was culturally, it was acceptable for David to bring Bathsheba as his wife. That wouldn't have really been uncommon, probably wouldn't even have blipped on many people's radar screens. Even further, though, that nobody else would have known but David and Bathsheba, is this was the final period, the last step of David being able to cover for their transgressions, for now she's his wife. Now, if that baby, that little baby was to come, they'll be able to look and say, oh, well, that came as a result of that relate, their marriage, not out of an adulterous affair. But notice something here. Notice the last part of verse 27. Listen to what it says. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is such a powerful statement there that we don't want to miss. Our sins displease the Lord. In particular, our unrepentant sins displease the Lord. And as I studied through 2 Samuel chapter 11, through 27 verses, not once do we see David even a slight bit remorseful. Not once do we see in 27 verses where David even feels bad about his actions. Not once does David repent in 2 Samuel chapter 11. What it would take is it took God having to send the prophet Nathan, David's friend, to David, and we read about this in the next chapter, in chapter 12, to confront him, to call him out on his decisions. So today, can I take the place of Nathan in your life? Can I take the place and can I speak into your life in a way that is so bold, that is so up in your business, so right in your face, as to ask you so clearly and so succinctly, are you in unrepentant sin? 
Are you in an adulterous relationship? Based on the size of this room, percentages say that there are some of you that are in that relationship right now as I speak. And if you find yourself in an adulterous relationship, can I tell you so clearly today that your brokenness will only get worse, not better. Every day that you stay in that relationship and you need to flee and you need to run away and you need to run away yesterday. But can I get in your business a little bit more? And can I ask you so personally, so intimately, so very, very specifically, are you in unrepentant sin? Are you addicted? Are you addicted to drugs? Are you addicted to alcohol? Are you addicted to food? Are you addicted to media? Are you addicted to sex? Are you addicted to the approval of someone else? Are you addicted to your pride? Does what happens in your secret place, does what happens in that area of your life where no one else knows, does it match up with what you project on the outside? Are you in unrepentant sin? And every single day you stay in that place, every single day that you stay in your brokenness, every single day that you hang on to your shame, every single day that you hang on to your regret is making it harder for you tomorrow than it would be to let go of it today. My point for you to wrestle with is this, is what needs to change in your life so that your decisions are led by God, not led by your stresses or brokenness. And when Nathan confronted David, David finally got it and he cried out to God. And that is my prayer for you today, that in your brokenness, in your shame, and in your regret, that you will cry out to God and say, God, I believe that your grace is greater than my brokenness. It's the reason of all the passages that I could have spoke on in the Bible, most pastors aren't jumping up and down and say, hey, can I preach on adultery? That's like not the top ten subjects that we want to speak on. But the reason that I chose this passage of all passages is first of all is it gives us an insight to David and Bathsheba's mindset to get them to a place of brokenness. But bigger than how they got there, I care far more not how they got there, but how they got out of it. And, De and God through his word gives us a beautiful picture of what happened when David cried out to God and allowed him to redeem the situation. So if in your Bibles you flip forward just a few books to Psalm chapter 51, we get to hear how David cried out to God and listened to a heart that goes from one that was hardened and prideful and sinful to one that is going to be made pure and real. Listen, Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now culturally, understanding the mindset David would have had as he was writing this, is there was a belief that God had kept together like a, a papyrus scroll where they would write down our different transgressions or our sins. So in essence, what David was saying is he was crying out to God, begging for forgiveness and saying, God, blot out my sin. God, blot out what it is that is written down on that scroll. Notice the words that David uses. He uses the word mercy, his God's unfailing or steadfast love, compassion, blot out, wash, cleanse, transgressions, iniquity. David describes here for us in two verses a beautiful picture of God's grace. 
Because God's grace in action is mercy. God's grace in action is his unfailing love. God's grace in action is God's compassion. God's grace in action blots out the sin. God's grace in action washes away our sins. God's grace in action cleanses us of all of our transgressions. God's grace in action removes all of our iniquities. God's grace in action frees us from our brokenness. God's grace in action removes our guilt. God's grace in action rejects our sin. God's grace in action is a personal love right into the depth of your heart. God's grace is greater than anything you find yourself in today. Look at verse 3. David now is getting to a place of true repentance. And he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Don't we know that when we're in times of sin? Don't we know exactly what it is that we have done in the ways that we've fallen short of God's glory? Well, that's exactly where David was at. And he says this. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What David is saying in Psalm 51 is he is painting a picture of repentance coming into focus. David was broken in such a way that he willingly was acknowledging the errors of his ways. And that's what true repentance is. Repentance is acknowledging the ways that we've fallen short of God's glory. Repentance is our way of saying, this is what I've done. I'm turning from it and turning towards God. My last idea on your bulletin today is this, is that brokenness leading to repentance brings about redemption. Brokenness leading to redemption, bring, repentance brings about redemption. Listen, skip down to verse 10. David, and I love the word picture he gives us. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not the Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David here gets it. David, as he's cried out to God, David, as he's repented from what he's done, David, with a heart that is so pure, that is so open, is saying, God, I need you to give me a clean heart because me in my own self, me in my own strength, me in my own decisions, I am broken. And I love the words that he says there. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David cried that out. Have you cried that out in your brokenness? Have you cried that out in your shame? Have you cried that out in your regret? Are you willing to do as David did, whether it's in your divorce, whether it's in your heartache, whether it's in your relational pain, whatever it is, are you willing to say, God, I need you to make a pure heart in me. I need you to renew my spirit, God. I need the joy, the joy of your salvation back in my life. As we come all the way back to the beginning of our time together today. At the very beginning of our time, I painted a few pictures and I said, what if that was the one thing? What if your brokenness, what if your regret, what if your shame was the one thing that God would use to draw you closer to him or that one thing that God would use to change you from the inside out? And God was able to do it and David did it. 
If God was able to do it in David's heart, don't get me wrong, there's consequences for sin, and David had to deal with them. But God, through his infinite grace, through his mercy, through his love, created in David a pure heart and renewed a right spirit within him. Do you need a clean heart? Do you need a right spirit? Are you willing to pray that? See, my last thought that I have for you today as we depart is this, is that redemption is God's grace becoming greater than your brokenness. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I, I, I can't help but think of David's words. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of sin, in the midst of being confronted and convicted by a friend, God, David's words were so pure and so powerful. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And Father, I pray that that will be what every single one of us that are in here today would say. God, will you create a clean heart in me? Will you create a renewed spirit within me? And Father, you've given me a lot of words to share today. And God, even through the, the leading and discernment of your spirit, God, I can see brokenness on people's faces. I can see heartache. I can see regret. I can see shame. And God, I know that that's not what you intended. I know, God, that's not what you want for any of us. And so, Father, instead of my words, may they be your words. As your Holy Spirit stirs. God, will you speak? Will you speak into the very specific brokenness? The very specific areas of need for redemption that are in this place. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friend, I want you to know, and I want you to know very specifically today, that Jesus has overcome. Jesus has overcome your brokenness. Jesus has overcome your regret. Jesus has overcome your shame. The question for you is, are you willing? Are you willing to let him cut those chains from your past? Are you willing to let him remove those chains so that you can be truly redeemed? Are you willing to acknowledge that you aren't who you once were? That your story is in the past because God is writing a new story. He has blocked out your transgressions. He has freed you from your iniquities. And he has created in you a pure heart. You are redeemed. You are redeemed when you trust in Jesus. You are redeemed when you give your life to Jesus. You are redeemed when you cry out to God and say, God, I need you. I am redeemed. God, your grace is greater than anything I found myself in. Your grace is greater than my shame. Your grace is greater than my, my past. And God, I want to experience your grace now as I worship you because I am redeemed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.